So we're going to return to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. We looked at this last time. But I first want to read you a passage from the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. I want to invite you to turn there. Um, it's near the end of the Bible. You have James 4 already printed in your bulletin, so you won't lose that if you have a bulletin. 1 John. 1 John. I want you to, yes, in fact, First John is just past James, like Jesse said. If you skip over Peter's letters, and Peter won't mind you skipping past him because he's made many perfect in humility in heaven. It's right after Peter. Yep. Peter would likely say that John was as close to a person as Jesus could be. In fact, John would bury his head in Jesus' breast, was really, in a real sense, nearest to Jesus' heart. John, he actually called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. John understood God's love in a unique way, and I think that's something we need to come to when we look at John's letters. I want us to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where the apostle of love writes this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I call your attention first to John's warning about the world and the things of the world in verse 15. Remember chapter 3 ended with James pointing us to the wisdom from above. And he warned us about the earthly wisdom that it was earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And by the way, the devil is about to pop up again, perhaps in a surprising context in James 4. Secondly, I call your attention to the terms in verse 16. Desires desires, and pride. And actually, many translations translate desire here, lust. We'll hear again in James 4 about our misplaced desires. Desires that reveal, and it's bad, our adulterous hearts. And James is going to note then that this is connected to pride because it's self-seeking. That is what the adulterer is always doing. We saw last time the cure for our twisted desires and our adultery is the jealous love of Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is that God gives more grace for every desire that gives birth to sin. And today, James will reveal the way to draw near to God. The path of exaltation. It comes by actually walking the path of humility. I want to walk that path to my God. And more so, I want to do this because this world and its desires are passing away. Because the one who does God's will, as John says, will abide forever. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So let's pray and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, uh, our time in this world is short and our need is so great. We ask and pray that you'll speak to us right now from your word. Will you uh, help us to understand why you inspired James to write this letter? 
that we might be changed and made more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So now hear the word of our God from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Now hear the word of God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. You purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. In 1960, the Everly Brothers recorded the song, Love Hurts. You may also know it is recorded by the band Nazareth. It begins like this. Love hurts. Love scars. Love wounds and mars. Now, if that didn't just punch you in the gut, here's how it ends. Some fools rave of happiness blissfulness, togetherness. Some fools fool themselves, I guess, but they're not fooling me. I know it isn't true. Love is just a lie made to make you blue. <laughs> this popular song tells us that while love promises happiness, completeness, heaven, if you decide to actually put your heart out there on the line on planet Earth, you're going to find love to be a cruel lie. Have you ever had your heart broken? Have you ever wondered why this is? The Bible has a lot to say about love and our heartbreak history. And I want to invite you again to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet of Hosea. Now, Hosea is a little past halfway. It's actually right after Daniel. Hosea is H-O-S-E-A. It's the first of the minor prophets. And I'm doing this because I want to help us to get familiar with our Bibles. H-O-S-U-E-A. <clears throat> uh, one easy way, actually, to navigate your Bible is to learn patterns. If you can learn the groupings, the first five books are the books of Moses. Then you actually have 12 books of Israel's history. Then you have five books of wisdom and songs. And then there's five major prophets, ending with Daniel. And the Old Testament then ends with 12 minor prophets, with Hosea being the very first. 
I don't know if you find that helpful or not. 5-12-5-5-12. Now, a friend told me last week that grouping this way, grouping them this way actually has been helpful to his memory. And if that helps, I, I commend it to you. So let's look at Hosea 1, verse 2. I'm going to read the NIV version. Follow it along your ESV. It's pretty close. Now hear the word of God from Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Friends, Hosea is one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible. Did you just hear what happened? God commanded Hosea, his holy prophet, to take to himself a wife, and not just any woman, but a promiscuous woman, an adulteress. Why would God do that? Why is this in the Bible? I mean, isn't the Holy Bible a rated G book? How did this make it in? Because the Old Testament people of Holy God are faithless. They desire the world and the things of the world. Holy God made them his own by rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, but they weren't satisfied with God. And that is what Hosea discovers after he marries his wife, Gomer. If we skip down to verse 6, we read, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Uh, did you happen to notice what changed there? Do you see what's missing? It's actually missing in verse 8 too. After she had weaned Lo, Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. In the first conception, right after the wedding, Gomer bore him a son, Hosea. Afterwards, we see she's still bearing children, but they're not Hosea's. Gomer is fooling around. And Hosea is having his heart ripped out before a watching Israel. Love hurts. But Joel, how did all the people know that Gomer was having affairs? because God was commanding Hosea to give these last two kids really strange names. What would you think if you had to enroll No Mercy and Not My People in elementary school? Imagine that. Every night at supper, Gomer has to call her kids home for supper. No Mercy! Not My People! Get home for dinner! You realize what this is? These kids' names are a daily sermon to the unfaithful people of Israel. Every neighbor hears that in the same way Gomer is birthing children of adultery, they are birthing sins because their desires are not to serve the living God. And eventually, what do these sins bring forth? What did James tell us way back in chapter 1? Sins give birth to death. And yes, that's true of Israel. Assyria will come and deport Israel, and she will be gone. We saw last time in James 4 that our sins against others are in the first place inside jobs. We like to point the fingers, but no, no. James says, no, these are inside jobs. Birth from selfish desires that lead us astray. 
And James added, these twisted desires are actually evident in our prayer life. Do you struggle to pray? And I mean by that, are you prayerless most of the time? Well, James says that this is because you don't want God to be the provider of your desires. Or do you pray and then find God doesn't answer your prayers? Well, that's because oftentimes your requests are centered on you and not what God wants for you. And then James holds up the message of Hosea, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means to be an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the bad news. We all are adulterers. We are all two-timers. Now, James is writing to people who have been baptized in Christ pretty recently. This is the first century church. Baptism was the new sign and seal that folks were being cleansed of all their former sins. But also, that's the seal part, that they were engrafted into Christ. Your baptism meant you belonged body and soul to Jesus. A way of thinking about this is your baptism is kind of like a wedding. Your baptism is like a wedding ring that God places on your finger. It is a sign that in the first place says, yes, because you're washed with water, you're purified, you're made pure and holy like a virgin for Jesus. But it is also, this is an important thing, a seal on us where Jesus says, you are mine. So we are to live as those who made vows to Jesus. But, but what happens? <laughs> Over time, I see a lot of excited Christians, our passions begin to fade, and those old desires come back, right? Especially because we leave here and we're daily inundated with the messages of the world, a world that does not love God, and is often openly hostile to our Maker. And how often do we find ourselves opening our hand, letting the world slide its in there, and we take hold? We make friends, but does it ever stop with simple hand-holding? What flirting into sin, what flirting turned into sin for you last week? And you did it, still knowing that God hated it. When we return to the old ways, the old habits, James is very clear, and it's hard, but we're committing adultery. And if you have ears to hear, well, that should sting your conscience. Because adultery may not end the marriage, but it sure screws things up royally. I've talked to people. Some of us may know that all too well. Let me ask you, is this surprise that sometimes we don't experience God here? Dear ones, we can't come into church on Sunday and expect to experience true intimacy with God if he knows that we've been, instead of preparing ourselves to come and have a special day with him, we were out fooling in the late hours on Saturday night. Let's just be honest. Too often we walk into these church doors as walking contradictions, partly truth and partly fiction, as one modern poet noted. But here's the good news. When you walk into church, God wants to make his enemies into his friends. He longs to redeem his wayward bride. James wrote, he yearns jealously, yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. James said, God is like a jealous husband. He wants to win us back. Jesus doesn't want a divorce. He holds forth more grace despite our past. 
Hosea and his marriage actually became a word-made thush illustration of God's redeeming love. As Gomer would end up abandoning Hosea altogether and then later finds out that those lovers she ran to don't want her anymore. If you look ahead, and I'll let you do this later on, God will speak to Hosea in chapter 3 and he'll say this, Go, show your life, show love, your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Let me describe what happens next. Gomer, picture her, the well-known prostitute. She's now standing on a platform and she's up for auction. Because they want to let people know what the goods they're getting, she's likely naked. Her pimp needs her no more, and he's just happy to get whatever he can for her. Gomer, imagine her standing there in shame before all these people wondering, after all I've done, who could ever want me? Who could ever desire me? The gavel goes down and the bidding begins, and suddenly a voice that she hardly remembers calls out from the distance. And a hush comes over the whole crowd as they look to see heartbreaking Hosea has come to redeem his wayward bride. They watch Hosea pay a huge price to redeem his faithless bride. It's glorious, friends. Can you imagine seeing him do this and taking her home? But This is only a shadow of the great love as God himself and Jesus came in our flesh to buy us back his adulterous bride from the slave market of sin. And the cost, it was the cross that Jesus paid to win us back. Friends, Jesus' love for you is indisputable because it required his own blood. Has anybody ever loved you better or more than Jesus Christ? So what now? When we take in that good news, what now? Since we're not our own, since we've been bought with a price, what do we do? James is calling us to learn the way of humility. I want to focus on these last four verses, five verses, starting in verse six. And I want us to notice humility bookends the remaining verses. Verse six says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This section right here begins and ends with a call to humility, along with a promise of grace and of glory. God opposes the proud, but will give grace and will glorify the humble soul. Now, we saw last time that pride was the root cause of all of our sin. And humility before God is the way to kill our pride. We're going to spend the remaining time fleshing out what this looks like. The first outworking of humility is dynamic devotion. Dynamic devotion. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I use this phrase dynamic devotion because the word submit in English carries kind of the notion of passivity. Yes, the Greek word hupotasso, it actually means to come entirely under the influence of another. Yes, but actually it carries with it an active, a busy sense. It's the same word that Paul uses when he tells wives to submit to their husbands. And I know that may be the most unpopular verse in our day, but we Christians, we don't care about what's popular. We as Christ's bride, because we're all 
the bride of Christ. We are to devote ourselves to him who saved us from sin for himself. This is utter abandonment of self, happily throwing our energy into the service of our Lord. So what does that look like? I'm going to say it's pretty much the opposite of all we see in our proud protest culture today. Children, that means they're called to obey their parents, to clean their rooms. Wives, they're called to honor their husbands by respecting and honoring their authority. Husbands, they're to love their wives, to hear her heart, and to lay down their lives for her. All of us, we're all called to care for and to help those who are in need. Thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. This is what humility is. And hupotasso, there's another sense of it that means to arrange your life under the rule of God. It actually carries a military sense. And humility is necessary because, friends, we live in a war zone. Stott calls this an active allegiance. I was actually having lunch with Vilas last week and a lady at the Martins, she had nowhere else to sit, so we offered her a seat. It turns out she just got back from a mission trip to Ukraine. She told us how incredible it was to see such active allegiance among all the normal citizens there. Not just that they revered and supported the troops, you know, and they would follow the air raid protocols. They'd all push their grocery carts aside and run to the bomb shelters all once whenever they went off and then come back and resume their shopping. I mean, there was a lot of that, but more. She said the anthem plays all the time. And every time the Ukrainian anthem would play, which was really often, everyone would stop what they were doing, and often they would salute. And she said the most incredible thing was watching a little two-year-old hear the anthem, snap to attention, and put their hand over their heart. A two-year-old. I think we're being called the childlike trust as new creations in a war zone putting our hand over our heart, pledging allegiance. That's the picture James is giving us here. And he adds, we are to resist the devil and he will flee. Full stop. Now, if you're reading James' train of thought, it's surprising that Satan suddenly pops up here on the page. The whole chapter has been talking not about problems and enemies outside us, but about our twisted desires, the war that is going on inside me, my battle with my old nature, my old desires, my pride. James puts the bullseye on me. Haven't you felt that? I am my own worst enemy. But then suddenly James says, we see the devil flee when I humbly put my hand on my heart and pledge allegiance to Jesus. When I actively arrange my life under God's rule, it causes the devil to flee. James wants us to see what John was showing us. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So we by nature live to imitate the devil, who, by the way, came imitating God. He pretended to be God. That is Satan's big lie. Mick Jagger was right. We have sympathy for the devil. In pride, the devil was the first to rebel against God because he wanted to be God. So every time we puff out our chests and say, I don't have to submit, we're actually imitating the prideful enemy of our souls. Satan loves it when we choose to imitate him in his rebellion. Satan hates it when we start dynamically devoting ourselves to God. And as we enlist ourselves humbly to live for God, what does that cause the devil to do? He's out of here. The next thing James notes is we must 
Cultivate closeness. Cultivate closeness to God. James writes, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, James is drawing on the worship language of the Old Testament. The temple priests could alone approach God by means of a sacrifice. But now that Christ has come and has offered the once-for-all sacrifice, guess what? I'm looking at you, and you are a royal priesthood. You, believer, are a holy priest able to draw near to God. And when you do, guess what? He draws near to you. Now, I know and I've heard people talk. They want their order reversed here. If only God would make himself real in my life. If he made his presence felt in my life, if, then I could feel myself pulled into his orbit. If he would just fill me more with his Holy Spirit, then I could live for him. No, friends. We don't passively drift into holiness and intimacy with God. And God isn't going to make us Holy Spirit puppets. No, closeness must be cultivated. We arrange our lives so that we're constantly taking in God's word. We're constantly on our knees praying. Jesus says in Luke 11 that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask, those who are seeking, those who are persistent. We discover Jesus and his love and his intimate as we attend to the means of grace in our worship service. My point is, friends, for every inch you move towards God, God moves two inches towards you. Amen. And then James adds what the priests used to do before entering the holy place. There's a whole lot of hand washing, purification rituals, because why? They were defiled by the world out there. And this makes sense. We get hand washing at like the earliest age. As a kid, my mom was constantly asking me, did you wash your hands before supper? So I'd be outside playing. And I didn't like to wash my hands, I'll confess. In fact, I would go in there, I'd run my hands under the water, dry them on my shorts and more than once, my mom would then take, examine my hands, look at my grubby hands and say, you didn't wash. And I would groan because I didn't like her telling me what to do. But my hands were filthy, germy from the world. And I had to listen. Actually, my mom constantly scolding me for that is one of the reasons I enjoy my hospital work. Because we have these hand dispensers outside each and every patient room. And all the staff are required to use them before and after we go into the room and I was told that I can and must address anyone who fails to do that. And I'll confess I get a bit of a thrill when I see a walk, doctor walk right by one of those without washing. And I could say, hey, doc, they just refilled the hand dispenser. And they look at me. They really love that, <laughs> And these sinners, guess what? They have to turn around and go wash their hands. Now, I say that I'm probably going to forget next time at the hospital and get humbled myself. But there's a reason why hospitals make such a big deal about hand washing. We go out into the world and we get defiled by all kinds of germs and pollution. How dare we go into a pure, sterile environment where a patient's life is at, at stake here without washing? We could infect them. We could make them more sick. Well, the same is true for us. We cannot go out into this world and not fall under the influence of it. We get dirty. Remember, we're double-minded. That's what James says. James used this phrase before. His point is, we are not singly devoted to God this side of glory. Secret sins and two-timing keep emerging, even as we're maturing in our faith. 
We need to be constantly cleansing our hands, constantly purifying our hearts. And notice, while God's work is to baptize, that's all him. These are our works of cleansing. In baptism, God cleanses us. He holds forth the promise of his spirit. It's a one-time act. God makes us his own. It's our marriage. I've been asked but many times, Joel, could you rebaptize me? Because I want to, you know, I feel like, you know, I need to get started over. If I did that, I would be suggesting that God has divorced this person. I understand the desire to get a fresh start when someone has fallen away from God, when they've gotten into bad sin. But Calvin notes, if we needed to be rebaptized every time we discovered more sin in our life, there wouldn't be enough rivers on the planet to cleanse us. But God gave us a way we can cleanse ourselves after we've already been made gods. That's why James says we need to be daily washing our hands by confessing our sins. I find it sad, actually, that I've been, I visited many churches before I planted this church. In many churches, you're coming into the presence of a holy and pure God, and folks don't think anything of the fact that they've been tainted by the world out there, that they've fallen into sin, that they need to wash. That's why I love we have a confession of faith. Phyllis was just telling me last week, he's like, I so loved being in a church where I can confess my sins because I know I screwed up last week. And I can do that before coming into holy God's presence. And to someone who says, well, I don't need to confess every week. Well, if you say you have not sinned, John also says you make God a liar. 1 John 1. And now we come to a verse that I don't think I've ever seen on any of our memorization lists. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James' final point is humility sees sin as serious. It sees sin as serious. Now we read this verse and James' point is not that we're to be a perpetual state of sorrow. Humility does not walk around pounding and breathing on its breast all day long telling everybody in the world that I'm such a wretch. That actually is to exalt my sin over my Savior. The point is, and what chapter 4 is all about, is when you do discover sin. When somebody comes up to you this week and points out how you wronged them, we need to pause. We need to examine what desire was taking control in our lives in that moment. And if it was self-centered, if it was prideful, you need to grieve over it. We need to stop with the jokes and the laughter at times. How serious do you see your sin? That's what James is driving home here. You cannot be humble. It's impossible for you to be humble if you don't take your sin seriously. Every sin we commit was absorbed by Jesus when God poured out his wrath on his own son. Don't we weep over how people have wronged us in the past? Don't we mourn over diseases? Don't we mourn over job loss? Don't we even cry at movies? <laughs> but do we mourn over our own sins and how they have hurt others and also ruined our witness of who our Savior is, our Lord Jesus? James here is calling us to repent every time we see wickedness in our lives. Our shorter catechism speaks of repentance unto life, how it is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God 
and endeavor after new obedience. Notice two things there. We see the seriousness of our sin and we grieve and we hate it, but at the same time, our other eye is fixed on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. This is not worldly grief that stays simply focused on self, but turns to Christ who gave his life for me. And it leads then to new obedience and glorious salvation. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. That's why we're called here at the end to humble ourselves before the Lord and the good news is, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. James began and concludes here with a call to humility. But notice here, in closing, he adds before the Lord. I think this is such a help to us attaining, becoming more humble, remembering that before the Lord. Because we're so easily, we tend to compare ourselves with others, right? To look down on others. But that is of no use at all. Because how well we do in comparison to all the other people in the world is not how we'll be judged. All that we do is before the Lord. And we recognize that we're living all of our lives, quorum Deo, that is a Latin phrase which means before the face of a holy God. When you're realizing that, it becomes much easier to humble yourselves. And we'll stop singing probably one of the top two songs that I hear pretty much in every other song, Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Because we will approach God's throne of grace and humility and we will say more and more, I did it thy way. I did it thy way. And God will lift us up to where we belong with our beloved Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just want to thank you for, for sending the Apostle James to speak hard words into our lives. But these words, these warnings, they're actually encouragements. They actually reveal you care about us because the moment you stop speaking, we're in big trouble. So we thank you that we're able to come here today and to hear your word. And I pray that you will continue to set us free from our two-timing ways, that more and more we will weep and mourn over our sins. But at the same time, will you make Jesus bigger in our lives? Lord, there's no sin that is greater than our Savior. So help us to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, to hear his voice, to trust and obey. And may we, in fact, inspire others to do the same by our witness. We live in a dying world. Will you use us mightily for the furtherance of your kingdom? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.